Well, we've got here to Friday morning. Now, we have a tradition. I know that some of you were up pretty late last night, (laughs) maybe quite a number of you. The singing was awesome that I could hear as I lay in bed trying to sleep at 12.30. (laughs) Singing was amazing. Um, But we do have a bit of a tradition, if you're new to annual conference, that is on Friday morning, if you're starting to just feel a little bit weary and you realise your eyes shut, I know that you say to yourself, Oh, I'll concentrate better if I close my eyes. <laughs> That's not the Spirit of God talking right there, right? That's not true. So um, if you start to feel yourself drifting off a bit, what we do is we encourage you to stand up and move to the side and look, it's already happening over on the side. Well done, brother. We have a tradition, if you're feeling a bit tight, then stand up and just move to the side, no one will care, and just take your your notes with you and take your pen and stand up for a while. And yes, if you then go, okay, I'm fully with it again, you might like to grab a seat on the edge, don't push all the way back in, or just stay standing up, that would be great. So uh, just do whatever you need to do to stay alert so that you don't waste the opportunity, okay? Let's get into it, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this final opportunity to meet together around your word With joy in our hearts, Father, we just pray that you might speak to us through your word. Tell us what we need to hear so that we might know you, love you, and serve you with everything you've given us. Amen. So this week we've looked at talk one, justified. We started with the fact that God is righteous. And then talk two, that he justifies us by his grace. Talk three that we're justified in Jesus Christ, talk four, justified through faith, and last night, talk five, we're justified for God. You give Him you. And this morning, talk six, justified with hope, justification and the future. Let me start with the question, why do we as Christians, seems to me, hope for so little? We hope for so little. Because when we read the New Testament, it's just assumed that the Christians are marked out from their surrounding society by their hope. By hope, I don't mean wishful thinking about the future. You know, oh, I hope I get my degree. That's wishful thinking, right? That may or may not come to pass. In the Bible, hope is the certain future that God's promised and for which Christians we eagerly look forward not wishful thinking, it's that eager, certain, sure expectation. And according to the New Testament, this sort of hope marks Christians out from the rest of society. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Peter writes, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Peter assumes that people will be struck by your hope as a Christian. And will demand to know from you, what's the story here? Why do you have this particular hope that I keep hearing about? Where does this hope come from? How can you have so much confidence that this is actually going to happen? So what do you reckon is the likelihood of someone in your lab or your tutor, your class at uni this semester coming up to you and saying, now look, explain to me this hope that you have for the future. Would anyone demand an accounting of us? For our hope, they may ask us other things. Why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Why are you wearing that weird green t-shirt? But would they ask us about our hope? 
Now, sometimes they might. Sometimes when a non-believing friend comes face to face with death, maybe their own or someone they love, they might ask us about why we believe in life after death or something like that. But we're often not asked about our hope until a fairly extreme situation like that. I just wonder if the reason we're not asked very often to give an account of the hope that is in us is because there isn't much hope in us. It's not that we don't believe these things that God promises about the future, but I'm not sure that that knowledge has grown into hope, a deep-seated longing for the future that God has promised in Christ that then permeates our life and our mindset, our plans and our decisions. Are we people who are characterized by hope? So I'll tell you what my fear is. Well, actually, I have one fear and one concern. I'm fearful that we've become so satisfied and comfortable in the present that we've stopped looking forward in anticipation and eagerness. We've become consumed a bit with the present in all the material blessings that God's lavished on us, in the political peace and security in which we live, in the abundance of good things that we enjoy from God's hand, like freedom to gain a tertiary education or to come on a conference like annual conference or to go on holidays or to buy houses or to stream music or to watch YouTube or discuss theology. There's so many good things from God that perversely we've stopped longing for the future. There's so much better and more glorious future that He's promised. And so we're no different really to anyone else in society around us. Because we don't have a hope that marks us out and distinguishes us as those who have hope, an eager, longing and certain expectation of the future God's promised. That's my fear. Now my concern is that because we're lacking in clear hope, we are too easily disheartened and threatened by trouble and suffering. See, if your hope petrol tank is empty then when real trouble and difficulties and suffering come your way as a Christian, and don't worry, they will, if they haven't yet, it's just you haven't lived long enough yet, when those difficulties and sufferings come your way, if your hope petrol tank is empty, or your hope petrol tank isn't even connected to your Christian car, you're going to be in real trouble. Because in the face of those difficulties and troubles, you need the promises of God. Because when everything else is stripped away, You need that future certainty of what God has promised. And what tragedy it would be if God had revealed His promises to you and you hadn't taken them in. If you hadn't grown in your hope before those certain hard times come. That would seem to be a situation we want to avoid. And so we're finishing Ancon this year by looking at hope because the Bible talks about our hope of righteousness. So our topic of justification, righteousness, intersects directly with our Christian hope. Now earlier this week we talked about the fact that there's a day of judgment coming when we will all face up to Jesus as our judge to give an account of the life that we've lived. But those who have faith in Jesus have nothing to fear on that day because they've already been justified. Have a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. I'm on page 51. Romans 5, verse 9. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by Jesus' blood, will we be saved 
through Jesus from the wrath of God. So your future salvation on that day of judgment is a sure thing because you have already been justified through Jesus' death. But righteousness is not just God's declaration on us in the present. What we wait for, what we hope for, is God's verdict on us on the final day. When before Jesus our judge, instead of the guilty verdict, we hear him say, you're righteous, you're okay, well done, good and faithful servant. So Galatians 5, 5 there, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Or again, 2 Timothy 4, 8 on your page, from now on there is reserved for me, says Paul, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, the final moment of justification will be on the final judgment day, when we all come before the judgment seat of Jesus and he declares us to be justified. So in the diagram there on page 51, you can see the thick arrow coming down, indicating God's verdict of righteous on the judgment day with the crown of righteousness. Now, I know you're tired, so I better be spell it out. It's not a real crown. We're not actually going to line up and get crowned. You go, oh, cool, I've always wanted a crown. And here's, here's. No, it's a metaphor. It's a glorious metaphor. He will crown us with his verdict, righteous. So what then does it mean to say that we're justified now, if that's the future day? Are we justified now or not? Well, the answer is yes. God declares you to be righteous now on the basis of your faith in Jesus in anticipation of his future verdict on that final day. Because you have faith in Jesus Christ now, that final verdict of justified is brought forward into the present and you are truly right with God now. As you can see there in the diagram, with a little arrow coming down announcing us as justified in the present. And our sure hope, our confidence, the arrow pointing forward, is that God, on that final day, He will declare us righteous, the final verdict. So justification has this dual focus. It's God's final verdict in the future, brought forward into the present, a verdict that is always on the basis of faith in Jesus, not from works. Now let's think a bit more deeply about this future judgment. Page 52. That there is a final day of judgment where we'll all face up to Jesus as judge. That's the clear teaching of the New Testament. You can see what Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense or what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Or again from Romans 2.16, Paul talks about on the day when, according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. Notice then three things about this coming judgment. Three things. First of all, it is universal. Applies to everyone. No one will escape this judgment. All nations, all times, all people, every individual. 
Secondly, it's comprehensive. This is not a judgment you can bluff your way through, like most uni exams. Or maybe like a job interview. There's no bluffing. This is just naked truth, including even, we're told, our secret thoughts. It's a comprehensive judgment. And thirdly, it is in accordance with our deeds. As it says there in 2 Corinthians 5, each will receive payback for what's been done in the body, whether good or bad. And as Romans 2.16 tells us, it's not just actions that are being considered, but thoughts as well. Now, this judgment ought to hold no fear for us as Christians. No fear. There is complete confidence for those who are justified in Jesus. Back to that passage we started with earlier from Romans 5, 9 and 10. Again, Paul says, Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life. You can rest confident that you'll be okay on that final day of judgment because you're in Jesus Christ by faith. If Jesus died for you while you were still His enemy, now that you have been, by His grace, justified and reconciled to God, you can be sure that you'll be saved through Jesus on that final day. You can have complete confidence facing that day that's coming. The only condition on that certainty is that you persevere in trusting in Jesus. You keep trusting Him. Have a look there. Colossians 1 verses 22 and 23 reminds us, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish, free from accusation. You're justified. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, we need to keep trusting. We need to keep on in faith in Jesus. It's not a case that, oh, I once prayed the prayer and became a Christian. No, it's that you keep on walking in the footsteps of faith. Your faith is a living, active, day-by-day thing. But then how does justification through faith fit with this final judgment that seems to look at our life, our works? Well, two points to note here, and this probably, you need need to focus for this, to get this clearly. First of all, our works reveal our faith, or maybe our works reveal our lack of faith. We saw this on Wednesday night when we looked at James 2. Our faith or our lack of faith shows in our works. And Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 7 when he talks about you can know a tree by its fruit. You can tell whether it's a good tree or whether it's a bad tree by whether it produces the fruit that it's meant to show forth. So works do accurately reflect our faith. But my problem, see, is that my works are all a bit mixed up. There are times, hopefully many, where I do show forth the fruit of the Spirit's work in my life, where I do love my neighbour as myself. But being honest, there's also times when despite the Spirit's work in me, where I stupidly and foolishly indulge the flesh, where I get angry out of selfishness, 
where I'm proud or where I catch myself trying to impress others or where my thoughts are less than they ought to be for one who's no longer in the flesh but's now walking according to the Spirit. So if you look at all of those works thrown in together, it, it sort of looks a bit confused. So how do my works feature in this? Something else must come into play if I'm to receive the no condemnation justified declaration from Jesus. Which brings us to the next observation on top of page 53. Works are interpreted through the faith that unites us to Jesus. So let's, let's focus in on this. Look at the way John describes the final judgment in Revelation 20. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it, and the earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now in this vision, there are two different sets of books. There are the books that contain our works, and there's this other book, the book of life. And in this picture, everyone is judged according to their works, as recorded in the first set of books. And anyone whose name is not found in the other book, the book of life, is thrown into the lake of fire. Now what's clear here is that the only way to survive this universal and comprehensive judgment that comes according to works is to have your name in the book of life. It's to be someone who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus. But it doesn't quite tell us how the two sets of books work together for the Christian. So Oliver O'Donovan reflects on this passage and he puts it together like this. He says, The final judgment of God is, on the one hand, a judgment rendered on human deeds. On the other, it's a creative new word rendered from a source that is independent of human deeds. These two aspects of divine judgment are complementary. The works that men and women have done become the basis of God's favourable or unfavourable judgment when they are read in the light of God's work of sovereign grace. That's the key phrase. He goes on, The ultimate and simple decision is not found in the books of human deeds, but in the book of life where it's a question of yes or no. Either a name is there or it is not. But the book of life does not supplant the book of men and women's deeds. Rather, those books, when read in the light of that book, take on the character of a correspondingly simple and final decision, a yes or no to God's grace. 
Let me explain. What O'Donovan is saying is that the ultimate issue is whether or not your name's in the book of life. That's a book that God has written. And your name is there, not on the basis of anything you've done. Your name is there purely by God's grace. He wrote it there. And when the books of human deeds are opened, and we turn to your chapter, if your name was there in God's book of life, the deeds of your life will reflect a life of faith, a life that has said yes to God and to His grace to you in Christ Jesus. And His grace to you includes forgiveness for all of the times that your works didn't reflect the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. They are read in tandem with, through, filtered through the book of life. So one question you might be asking is, if persevering in faith is crucial, how can I know whether I'm going to persevere like this to the end? Well, the good news is that Jesus promises persevering grace. Everything that the Father gives me, he says, will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Here's real assurance, a promise of Jesus, that it's his Father's will that he will lose none of those entrusted to him. He will preserve you in faith, enabling you to keep on trusting him to that final day. How does God do that? What's his means of preserving you in perseverance? Three things to jot down. His first means is his word and spirit. He's given you his word in the Christian scriptures, and He's given you His Spirit within you to preserve you in perseverance. Secondly, he's, His faithful provision of a way out from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, if you haven't memorized 1 Corinthians 10.13, you probably should. It's a very useful word from God in times of temptation. He promises to provide a way out in any moment of trial or temptation to enable you to faithfully persevere and stand up in faith. And thirdly, his means of preservation, the fellowship of his people. He's granted us one another so that we might trust, that we might hear God's word and be encouraged from one another. And so the significance of this year's EU's All Union Foci, right? Cultivating personal biblical spiritual habits of prayer and reading the Bible and meeting with other believers. That's so that God's Word might dwell richly in you. That's a key way that God's going to use to preserve you in faith and perseverance in Him. But I want to dig a little bit more then into this question of assurance. Where do I find assurance about this future judgment? Well, assurance and faith are linked together in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The writer there says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word assurance there can be translated as firm trust or confidence. Faith is a confidence, a a firm trust in the things for which Jesus has promised. Faith doesn't go, oh, maybe these things will happen, maybe they won't. 
Faith says, yes, they will happen because God says so. Saw that on Wednesday night with the example of Abraham in Romans 4. God said, you'll be the father of many nations. As many descendants as the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, okay, you say so. That's faith. And there's this close link between faith and assurance. I put it there in the box on page 54. The essence of faith is trust in the promises of God in Christ. But trust in the promises of God is also the essence of your assurance. The key to assurance doesn't lie somewhere else apart from the promises of God. It's not like we say, okay, I've put my faith in Jesus. Now, where can I look for assurance that He'll keep His promise to me? No, when we put our faith in Jesus, our assurance is found in Jesus too, in His faithfulness to His promises to me. And so the key to our assurance is that we just trust He'll keep His promise. The key is to keep looking to Jesus. Look at how John Calvin put it there on page 54. He says, if we have been chosen in Christ, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves and not even in God the Father if we conceive Him as severed from His Son. Christ then is the mirror wherein we must, and without self-deception may, contemplate our own election. For since it is into His body the Father has destined those to be engrafted whom He has willed from eternity to be His own, then He may hold as sons all whom He acknowledges to be among His members. We have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ. Now He gave us that sure communion with Himself when He testified through the preaching of the gospel that He had been given to us by the Father to be ours with all His benefits. Now, look, I love that phrase two-thirds of the way through where Calvin says, we have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ. If you have fellowship with Jesus, if you trust Him and follow Him as your Lord, that is sufficient assurance because Jesus keeps His promise. Or if you found Calvin a bit difficult to wrestle with there, the language a bit, bit old-fashioned for you, top of page 55, Don Carson, who quotes Calvin, puts it together like this. He says, The primary ground of assurance, the ultimate ground, is Christ, the cross, gospel promises, God's covenantal faithfulness. In short, the proper object of Christian faith. But because, and here he quotes Calvin, the knowledge of God is efficacious, that is, it really has an effect, it does what it's meant to do, therefore they by no means know God who keep not His precepts or commandments. That is, if you've got genuine knowledge and faith in God, it will show itself in action. Thus, he says, the argument from works can never be the ultimate or primary ground of our confidence, but works may serve as an accessory or inferior aid to assure us that our faith is not fictitious. So when it comes to assurance, it's not wrong to look at the way God is working in your life to encourage you that, yes, your faith is real, but your ultimate assurance comes not from looking at yourself, it comes looking to Jesus and trusting the promises of God. 
that you have there in Jesus. So let's conclude this section with just a few observations at a personal level. See, assurance of salvation is frequently a, a pressing issue. We're so often confronted with doubts and questions, and there are probably at least three different groups you could fall into here. First, there is the oversensitive conscience. Maybe you feel your failings and sin and they weigh very heavy upon you. You're just so aware that you have such a long way to go in holiness for you to conform to the likeness of your Lord Jesus. And sometimes you just worry that maybe, maybe somehow you just won't make it. You just won't be good enough. Really, does God love you? Really? Well, God's word to you, if that's you, God's word to you is this. Stop worrying. He is faithful. He'll keep his promise to you. Just keep putting your faith in him. You'll see. You'll get there at the last day because of his grace and faithfulness. And you'll go, there you go. He kept his promise. Yeah, of course he kept his promise. Trust him. Then there's a second group, what we might call the presumptuous. The whole anxiety about whether or not I'm really saved might be something of a mystery to you. You're not particularly troubled by those questions. I'm a Christian, so I'm okay. That's always been the way you've worked it out. Maybe you're not really aware of any sin issues in your life. It's all going along pretty cruisingly. Well, if that's something like you, then I think God's word to you is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you're standing, watch out that you don't fall. It's dangerous to presume that everything will just be okay. Now, it's right to trust God that He'll keep His promise, but the New Testament tells us to work out our salvation with a respectful fear and trembling. We're to keep on following in the faith footprints of Abraham. Be careful that you don't slide into arrogance and hard-heartedness. Keep on asking God to do what He's promised and can bring to completion this work in you to conform you to the likeness of Jesus and do so humbly, listening to His Word by the Spirit amongst His people. The third group of people are the disobedient. You may be a follower of Jesus, but you know that there are things, areas of your life that are not as God would have them be. I'm talking about particular sins or a particular area in which you continue to indulge the flesh instead of walking according to the Spirit. Or maybe you've come here this week to annual conference and you know that you're not a follower of Jesus and you know He wants you to put your faith in Him. In either case, God's word to you is repent, confess your sins to Him and entrust yourself to Him in faith as your Saviour and your Lord because He forgives and He promises to save all those who call out to Him. Now that we have been justified by Jesus' blood, much more surely will we be saved through Him from the wrath of God. 
it's never too late to make that commitment to turn back to Jesus and be saved. And if you've been toying with it all week, don't put it off any longer. You know Jesus' love for you. You know the reality of His judgment day. And you know the consequences of refusing His gift of justification and new life in Jesus. Don't put it off. Grab a Christian friend at the end, straight at the end of this session and ask them to help you commit your life to Jesus. Go to lunch, not just go home, but go to lunch and then go home assured of your standing with God in a new relationship with Him as a forgiven and free child, holding on to this precious and powerful truth that you're justified. For everyone in all of these groups, assurance of our justification with God comes through that same way, through entrusting ourselves to the promises of God in Christ. Now, Martin Luther makes the point that trusting in God's promise means trusting that He's made those promises to me, to you personally. Have a look at what he says on page 55. You might resonate with what he says here. He said, I've often spoken of two different kinds of faith. The first goes like this. You believe that it's true that Christ is the person who's described and proclaimed in the Gospels, but you do not believe that He is such a person for you. You doubt if you can receive that from Him, and you think, yes, I'm sure He is that person for someone else, like Peter and Paul, and for religious and holy people. But, he, but is He that person for me? Can I confidently expect to receive anything from Him that the saints expect? And then Luther says, you see, this faith is nothing. It receives nothing of Christ and tastes nothing of Him either. It cannot feel joy nor love of Him or for Him. This is a faith related to Christ, but not a faith in Christ. The only faith which deserves to be called Christian is this. You believe unreservedly that it's not only for Peter and for the saints that Christ is such a person, but also for you yourself. In fact, for you more than anyone else. Real faith in Jesus is personal. It's trust in Him, in His promises to me. Not just to me, but very definitely including me. I tried to represent it there in the picture at the top of page 56. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But the busy art student working the table in the cafe, just to get your attention, the busy art student there working in the cafe on the left says, you are the Son of God but I don't think you'll give me eternal life. Is that real faith? Is that real trust in Jesus' promise? When Jesus says, whoever believes in me receives eternal life. But the other aeronautical engineering student working in the cafe, because they don't get jobs either, <laughs> the one on the right responds to Jesus' promise with, you are the Son and my life giver. 
That's genuine faith. That's taking Jesus at his word. Genuine faith grapes hold of all of Jesus' promises in amazed joy and thankfulness and said, by grace, it's, it's mine. Praise God. So let's come back to our topic of hope as we finish up. What is the hope, the sure future for which we long and wait as those who've been declared righteous by God in Christ? Four aspects of our hope all connected to righteousness. First, those declared righteous will be resurrected like Jesus. Luke 14, Jesus gave this advice. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The righteous will be raised up, resurrected at that last day. And that's you. Not because of any works you've done, not because of the holiness of your life. You've been declared righteous now through faith in Jesus. So you can be confident and look eagerly forward to your bodily resurrection from the grave. That's a wonderful hope to have. A wonderful security in the face of death's tsunami that will catch us all. But our sure hope is in Jesus' promise that He will raise us up at that last day. And so when you come face to face with death, with its tragic reality, and maybe coming face to face with death is not something you've had to do yet for yourself or for a loved one, but it will come that day. And when you have to face death's reality face to face, what a precious hope you have in looking forward to the defeat of death in your own experience and your resurrection with all those declared righteous in Jesus. That's your hope, to be resurrected like Jesus. But that's not all. Our sure hope is also of being made righteous like Jesus reading here from 1 John 2. If you know that He, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of Him. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He was revealed to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Okay, practical exercise. You got a pen? Got a pen there in your hand? Why don't you circle what is said there in that little pa paragraph about Jesus? I'll help you because I know you're tired. Let's circle it all, right? Verse 29, verse 29, Jesus is righteous. Circle that. Jesus is righteous. Then verse 3 at the end, Jesus is pure. Verse 5, in Jesus there is no sin. That's who Jesus is, right? He's righteous, pure, without any sin. And the awesome, and I mean awe-inspiring, jaw-droppingly great promise of God is in verse 2. When Jesus is finally revealed 
to all, we will be like Him. As those who are God's children now, we know that when He's revealed, we'll be transformed to be like Him, righteous, pure, without any more sin. Are you sick and tired of continually falling into sin? I know I am. We don't want to sin. We know we're in the Spirit. We're not in the flesh. But in our weakness, in my weakness, I keep on giving in to sin. I give it a foothold back in my life. How good is it to know that God's going to change all that? When Jesus is revealed, I'll be like Him by the grace and transforming power of God. You'll be completely righteous, thoroughly pure, and in you will be no sin. Praise God. What a great hope that is. A third aspect of our hope in Jesus, top of page 57. The righteous will be glorious like Jesus. Look what Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2 again. Therefore, he says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Well, later in the same letter, Romans 8.30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, now that's you, that's me right there. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory is the destiny of the justified. Glory is the destiny of those who are justified. That's you, that's me, by grace in Christ. I love the way Jesus pictures it in Matthew 13, where he picks up an image from Daniel, a book in the Old Testament, chapter 12. Jesus says, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You know, these days, one of the trending things is to have in your sort of CV a personal vision statement. You know, you put, in, you put it in your resume, my life goal, my personal vision statement. I don't know what you're really meant to put on them, probably something fairly inane like, fulfill my potential or world peace or make a heck of a lot of money. I'd like to write personal vision statement, shine like the sun in the kingdom of my father. There's a vision statement. Now, it's not a vision that I can pull off. What hope have I got of shining like the sun? I could go sit in a solarium for a few days and people do say that if I bend my head at just the right angle at Ancon, I can shine pretty, pretty well. <laughs> to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father is a metaphoric way of describing the glory of God that He will work in us. We will share in the very glory of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. He will share His glory with you. 
glory is the destiny of the justified. Finally, our hope is for, in Jesus, a whole new righteous creation. I'm not speaking just about ourselves as a new creation, though that's part of the future that Jesus has promised. I'm speaking about the renewal of all of creation. Have a look at how Peter describes the new creation in chapter 2 of, two, of Peter. 2 Peter, sorry, chapter 3. But in accordance with his promise, Peter writes, in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. That actually brings us back full circle to where we started the week. God's righteousness is that He will not let sin destroy His good intentions for His creation. He will see all things brought into conformity with His good purpose and will, so that everything, absolutely everything, you, me, the creation itself, will be fully and finally right glorious and wonderful and free of sin and decay, shining in the wonder and resurrected glory of His risen Son, Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. That is where God is taking all things, new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. That's our hope. That's our sure future in Jesus, by grace, through faith. We're justified. Rejoice in the fact that God is righteous. Praise Him for His grace, that He's justified you by grace. Praise Him for Jesus, who died for our sins and rose for our justification, so that we might be justified in Him. And so be people of faith, who trust Jesus in everything and for everything. You've been justified for God. So walk by the Spirit. Be a living sacrifice. Live in love to one another as His justified people. And remember that we've been justified with a sure hope. We're eagerly waiting for that day when we're raised with Jesus, fully righteous like Jesus, shining with His glory in His new creation where righteousness will be at home for eternity. What a great gospel. What a great saviour. What a great God. Let's pray. Love divine. All other loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us your humble dwelling. All your faithful mercies crown. Jesus, you are all compassion, pure, unbounded love you are. Visit us with your salvation. Enter every trembling heart. And finish then. Your new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see your great salvation perfectly restored in thee. 
changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before you, lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen. Please join us as we continue to pray and thank God for Ancon and pray for the semester ahead. Lord God, we thank you for the week that has been ANCON 2019. We are so grateful that we have, had, we have got the ability and the resources to be able to run such a conference without personal